Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I hope you're doing well today. I've had a good time interacting with each other in the lobby, worshiping Jesus through song. Enjoying yourself? Amen? Good. And I know there's lots of different stuff happening in everybody's story here today, but we're glad that you're here. And I believe we got a message from the Lord today that uh, is going to apply to each one of our lives. Uh, I bet you most of you here have probably watched a movie before where there was a hijack scene, or maybe you've seen a a Netflix show, uh, whether it was a train or a bus or an airplane, maybe back in the 90s, uh, Air Force One with Harrison Ford as Air Force One gets hijacked, he's the president, has to take it back. Or maybe you've seen uh, Speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, and you don't want to admit it, but a lot of people saw it, so some of you have seen it. And uh, what happens in those movies or those shows is there's a villain, whether it's a terrorist or some bad guy robber, and he hijacks whatever device it is, train, plane, automobile, whatever it is, and uh, sends it in another direction. There's some heroic figure that takes it back. And I want to ask a question to some of you. I know it won't apply to everybody today, but if you were alive during September 11th, 2001, do you remember the first flight you took after that? I remember that day, our nation, um, under terrorist attack, had four planes uh, hijacked by 19 different terrorists. There were five on three of the planes, four on one of the planes. The plane that we know the most about, of what took place at least inside the plane, uh, was Flight 93. Because of radio broadcast and things, people having phones on that were left on and the cockpit recordings and, and different things. And that was the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. Two planes went into the trade towers in New York City. One went into the Pentagon. And this was the plane that went down in a field in Pennsylvania. And uh, we know that plane was delayed that day by 42 minutes. And so later taking off than what the terrorists who were on that plane sitting in first class thought it was going to take off. In fact, it took off just four minutes Uh, before the first plane flew into the North Tower in New York City. And by the time it had reached cruising altitude and was into its flight, um, people started to respond, the airline itself, and people calling folks that were in the cockpit of that plane. In fact, the pilot, Jason Dahl, received a message from the airline at 9.26 that morning telling them that other planes had been hijacked. At 9.27, he wrote back and asked to confirm that message. At 9.28, the hijackers began to overtake that plane. It dipped 685 feet in 30 seconds, and the terrorist had moved the passengers, they murdered one at that point, but had moved the rest of them to the rear of the plane. And we know for a fact that 35 phone calls were attempted to be made at that point from phones that were on the plane, remember those, and then cell phones as well. Uh, 10 calls went through from the phones on the plane, two calls went through that were on cell phones, and those have been recorded, and you've probably heard of some of the folks that made those calls. One of them uh, was a husband who called his wife. Um, His wife's name was Dina, and his name was Tom, and Tom called Dina and started to say, here's the things that happened on this plane. Here's what's going on. Now, she's watching the news. And do you remember what was happening? Like, we didn't know what was happening. It was like misinformation happening, more things than what actually took place being reported. But we knew that there was two planes that had gone into the towers, and she's telling that to him. He's relaying it to the 30-some other passengers that are in the back of this plane. Another guy called his wife, and... uh, said to her all the things that were happening, and, and then he left his phone on the entire time. And he told her, we voted, the passengers, and we're going to try and retake the plane. The most famous call came from a guy named Todd Beamer, who called, he was trying to call his wife, but got an operator, talked to the operator, and told her the things that were happening on the plane, and said to her, if we don't make it, told her that we're going to try and take the plane back. If we don't make it, tell my family how much I love them. Recited Psalm 23, recited the Lord's Prayer, 
And then he's the one that's heard from another device later saying, you ready? Okay, let's roll. And then there's a fight on the plane and eventually it goes down as they try to retake it. Those of you who are alive then, do you remember the first flight you took after that? Because you might not have known all those details of Flight 93, but you heard some version of that story. Do you remember the next flight you took after that? And did you not think to yourself, if this flight gets hijacked, here's what I plan to do? In that moment, like some of you might just be cowards and you're like, We're, it's done. Like if it gets hijacked, it's over. But I bet most of you thought to yourself, if this plane gets hijacked, here's what I'm going to do to try and retake the plane. Today, we're talking about the topic of marriage. Marriage has been hijacked by both enemies, foreign and domestic, seen and unseen. Through distraction, distortion, there's a leading to a destruction of marriage in our world. The question for us is, will we try to take it back? And so I titled today's message, Reclaiming Marriage. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians again. We've been going verse by verse through Ephesians. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read to you verses 22 through 33, the whole thing, in just a minute, and then we'll, we'll walk back through it and break it down. But in case you just need a review, because a lot of stuff has happened since last week, or you're new to the church today, uh, so you know, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, a letter written to this church by a guy who helped plant this church, and we've been going verse by verse from Ephesians 1.1 up till this point. Here's a summary of the first three chapters. There's only one command in the first three chapters. The command is, remember where you came from. Everything else is about who God is and what He's done. It climaxes in a transition passage that ends with Paul, the guy who writes this letter, praying now to him who's able to do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. That's why we've titled this series Beyond, because it's about a God who's beyond what we could imagine. According to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen? Amen. And then what happens in chapter 4 and verse 1 is key to understanding the rest of the book, because there's a bunch of commands after that. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, walk worthy or live worthy of the calling by which you've been called. And what does it mean to be worthy? Being worthy does not mean you're buying back your salvation. Does not mean you're trying to earn your salvation. Being worthy is that you're living a life conducive to your calling. Your calling's heavy. The calling is all of chapters 1 through 3, your salvation. And so what does that look like? And what we've been looking at is different areas of life, how that fleshes itself out, and today it's marriage. Look at it with me. Um, verse 22, chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that, here's the reason, he might present the church to himself in splendor, so he's preparing her, present her to himself, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm, ta I'm talking, or I'm saying, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, let's not get beyond practical here, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now I get it, this is a topic 
has a lot of different views on it. There are a lot of different people at different stages of life that are listening to these words right now as we open up the Scripture. There are some of you here that are single and you want to be single. There's some of you here that are single and you don't want to be single. There's some of you here who are married and you want to be married. There's some of you here who are married and you don't want to be married. I get that. I think God's got a word for each one of us. You're single and you want to be single? Okay, maybe you have the calling of single. That's great. You are going to be in small groups with people that are married. You are going to see, if nothing else, the truths of what God says here is so beyond what we would ever ask or imagine. You should at least glory in the fact that God is so beyond us by seeing this passage. But you're going to have practical wisdom from this passage that you can speak into other people's marriages from a perspective that's different than most people they're going to talk to. And you might think, well, I don't have any credibility. I'm not married. Well, you might have a unique, pure perspective of not being tainted by your experience and going, doesn't the Bible say this? Some of you here are single and you want to be married, and this is a vision for what could be and should be. Some of you here are married and you want to be divorced. I hope that God will change your mind today, and you'll see what you could have if you'd submit to His plan. Some of you here are married and you want to be married, and I hope that this just strengthens it and makes it even better. And, and so you look at this passage of Scripture, and, and we've got to dive in here and, and see what's happening. What Paul's doing is he's painting a picture for us here in this passage. And, and the problem is, for many of us, is we haven't seen this picture before ever lived out in our own experiences, in our parents' marriages, in our friends' marriages. And so we go with what we think we're supposed to do, with mar- and we start misusing what God created, and it creates a mess. And we've probably all seen this with products before, Right? Have you ever tried to take a key and open something with a key? That's not what a key is designed for, just FYI. A screwdriver, that's probably the most misused tool ever, right? Like you think about all the things, a pry bar, a hammer, like all the things you can use a screwdriver for. But I think a ladder takes the cake for misused product. I was looking some up uh, this week of how people misuse ladders. I've got some pictures here for you. Just take that in. If you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, I don't see a problem, you are the problem in that situation. I read a statistic this week that said there are over 170,000 hospitalizations in the United States, not the world, for accidents related to ladders. You think, no, that's not possible. Then you look at the pictures and go, I will note there are no women in these pictures. (laughs) Just saying. See, when you take something and you misuse it, it becomes dangerous. We're talking about marriage today, and think about the images most of us get of marriage. Think about Hollywood image, Netflix image, shows, movies. It's either, marriage is usually either portrayed as some white, hot, passionate, romantic relationship that leads many people to go, let's not mess this up with a piece of paper, or it's such a mess that everybody would look at it and go, who wants any of that? Or if you watch the news, just say you watch cable news. I know most of you don't. (laughs) Yeah, right, but whatever. what are they, t- when you're talking about marriage and you're talking about arguments about genders and, and, and can two of the same sex get married and all that, the arguments are always that this is financial thing. It's this financial agreement. We need benefits and government rights. And so is marriage a red, hot, white, hot, passionate relationship or is it a financial agreement? Or maybe you've heard some of your friends say, you will complete me about, or maybe the way they say it nowadays is they'll put it on social media, hashtag blessed. Can you believe I found the perfect person? <laughs> And so we get this idea that my marriage would be good if I just, there's two sinners, by the way. If I just found the perfect person, well, I'm still a sinner, but if I found the right person, everything would be awesome. And we get all these messed up views of what marriage is supposed to be like. Is there any wonder it becomes a mess? 
We're misusing what God created, not as intended by the designer, and we're wondering why it's not working. I read uh, one person this week who said if uh, car manufacturers had a less than 50% success rate in the early stages of their product, we'd do something drastic to fix the problem. He wasn't a Christian. Uh, let me read you what he said, and uh, his book is called Becoming Partners, Marriage and Its Alternatives. He writes from a very humanistic point of view, but he says, to me, it seems that we're living in an important and uncertain age, and the institution of marriage is most assuredly in an uncertain state. If 50 to 75% of Ford or General Motors cars completely fell apart within the early part of their lifetimes as automobiles, drastic steps would be taken. We have no such well-organized way of dealing with our social institutions. So people are groping more or less blindly to find alternatives to marriage, in parentheses, which is certainly less than 50% successful. Living together without marriage, living in communes, extensive childcare centers, serial monogamy, which is one divorce after another, uh, the women's liberation movement to establish the woman as a person in her own right, new divorce laws, which do away with the concept of guilt, these are all gropings towards some form of man-woman relationship for the future. And then he says, it'd take a bolder man than I to predict what will emerge. That book was written in 1973, almost 50 years ago. Do you want to know what will emerge? Turn cable news on. Start watching movies. Look around. And it's not good. And so what we need to do if we're going to reclaim marriage is we've got to reclaim God's reason for marriage. That's our first point today. We must reclaim God's reason for marriage. As we've walked through this book, going verse by verse, we've taken, I'm pretty sure, every passage from the top verse until the bottom verse, and we just walked back through. Today we're going to do it a little bit different. The way this passage is outlined is the first two sections tell us how to have this kind of marriage, and the last part tells us why. We're going to start with the why, the reason, and then we're going to come back and talk about the how. And so the why starts at the end of the passage where Paul's quoting about this, uh, the, quoting it back in Genesis and, and then giving us this, this mystery that's taking place here. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture of what marriage should and could be, but it's a picture of restoration. It's a reclaiming of what was supposed to be from back in Genesis chapter 2. That's why he quotes in Genesis chapter 2. And so think about a picture. Think about those of you who are married. Some of you probably have wedding pictures around your house. Might be underneath the bed. Might be hanging up on the wall. Might be on an end table. But when you look back and think about that picture, what do you see? And I don't just mean, oh, man, I used to have more hair or I used to weigh less, like whatever. Probably that was your peak physical moment, by the way, because it was perfect in that, that exact moment. But you see more than just a cute couple, hopefully. When you see that picture, yeah, a little kid said, yeah, <laughs> you see the story from that day and whatever you remember of that story. And so maybe the people that were there. Uh, perhaps vows that were taken, people that said th certain things, the blur of events that took place. But you remember not just that picture of who those two people were, but what happened at the story. This picture that Paul's painting in Ephesians 5 tells a story, and he connects the story back to the beginning of the story. When he quotes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh incredible truth. I like how the New American Standard, which is a very literal translation, translates this because English Standard Version that I just read from, which is the one I usually preach from, uh, starts with therefore, which is a connecting word and shows us it's there for a reason and, and you've got to figure that out. But the NAS says this, uh, for this reason, 
a man shall leave his father. So there's a reason, mother, and be joined to or, or united to, do some of your translations say, or hold fast to, the English standard said, his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's a, a direct quote of Genesis 2.24. So, so you can see that, put that on the screen. For this reason, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What Ephesians 5 is doing is restoring what was happening in Genesis chapter 2. In your minds, go back to Genesis chapter 2. That's before sin. You think about what happened. Genesis chapter 1 is all about creation. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that man and woman were created in the image of God. So they're equal. They're both image bearers. They're not the same. Great observation. I know. Thank you so much for that. They're not the same. But when you start reading Genesis chapter 2, you realize they weren't created at the same time. Because man was created... And he's given dominion. Now he's been commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And he's been told, go and name all the animals. And so he goes and he names all the animals. Zebras are awesome. Horses are pretty. Elephants are huge. But Genesis 2.20 says there's no suitable helper for him. So who's the suitable helper? It's not good for him to be alone. There's no suitable helper. What are we going to do? God creates woman. And when Adam wakes up, his mind is blown. He is beyond what he could have asked or imagined. Now, God could have created another man to be a friend. He could have created two women. That's not what he did. He created a man first, then he created a woman. And then we have Genesis 2.24. And it's the first covenant between two humans about a relationship. And it's the most intimate one there is to this day. For this reason... So what's the reason? Well, it's complicated, so let's not answer that yet. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Wait a minute. Hold up. <laughs> Remember where we're at? There's two people. We didn't need like match.com. There's no dating around. It's like, hey, this is it. This is what we got. So where's mom and dad? There is no mom and dad. Adam was created from dirt. <laughs> so why in the world does God say here, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife because he's setting a precedent that's to last throughout time. One man, one woman, in covenant relationship, unified, that's symbolized, comes together when they have sex together. They're unified, joined together, and they all become one flesh. So you think about this. Think about where they're at then. This is perfect unity in intimacy here. God set a precedent that's supposed to last throughout time, and there's no sin. You want to talk about beyond what you can ask or imagine? Can you imagine your marriage without sin? And don't just start thinking about the other person right now, by the way. Like, no arguments, no fighting, no critiquing each other. No, you, there's never, Adam and Eve never had this situation. Going through the drive-thru, and she says she doesn't want any fries, but you know she's going to eat all your fries, and now you've got to decide, do I order two sets of fries? Right? I mean, you, she, they never had that. Never argued about the toilet seat. They didn't have a toilet seat. <laughs> never argued about in-laws. We just said they didn't have in-laws. Wow, this is amazing. You start thinking about this. I never argued about whether you should squeeze the toothpaste or roll the toothpaste. They didn't have toothpaste, which I think should present its own problems, but whatever. They had the perfect marriage for one verse. Because if you read Genesis 2, the last verse in chapter 20, or chapter 2 is verse 25, and it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then the next verse is Genesis chapter 3. And if you know the Bible, you know that Genesis chapter 3 is the story of what we call the fall. 
It's where Adam and Eve fell, where sin entered the world. They got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And we talk about it's because they trusted themselves, they trusted their flesh, they, because of their pride, they trusted Satan, rather than trusting God. But talking about it from a marriage perspective, there's even more happening there. Especially with what we know about Ephesians chapter 5 and the roles that take place in Ephesians chapter 5 in the ideal marriage. Because what happens is the exact reversal of those things. It's interesting because Eve is deceived and she takes the fruit. And what we find when we read Genesis 3, and if you've got your Bible and start reading through it, is Adam was standing right there the whole time being passive. And he's supposed to be the leader. And he was created first, not because he's more important, because he has a different role. And he was given the command not to eat of this tree. And his, it's his responsibility to teach it to his wife. It's his responsibility to protect her. It's his responsibility to take responsibility. Instead, he's passive. And then what happens? It's interesting. Uh, God comes on the scene in verse 9, and he's looking for the man like he's looking for all passive men. And look at what he says. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? That's a great question for many of us. Where are you in your leadership? Where are you in taking responsibility? And do you know what happens next? Because remember before, there was no shame. Now there's shame. And not only is there shame, there's blame. This woman you gave me, it's either her fault or your fault. It's certainly not my fault. Failure to take responsibility. Now he's playing the blame game. And now we got a ton of problems. And you start reading the curse. And her desire will be to rule over her husband. And he's going to be frustrated in his work. Anybody experience this? Okay, you don't have to say anything. Don't elbow anybody. It's because of what started here, and we've all done it since. But it's so important in the Bible. The Bible starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. The first miracle Jesus performs is at a, a wedding. If you look at the way that God talks about his relationship with his people, corporate people, Israel in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, the church, he uses marriage language. When he talks about their idolatry in the Old Testament, he says you're committing spiritual adultery. In Jeremiah, he says he divorces his people because they're not living like they're in a… I'm not going to pretend like this is a marriage. He doesn't go get new people, by the way, but he divorces his people. He's saying, you're not, this isn't, you're not living in covenant. There's a remnant, but not the whole people. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about himself as the bridegroom and the church is his bride. And what, what we have here is a picture in Ephesians chapter 5 that's pointing back to that original marriage before it was broken for this reason. What was the reason? Well, if you read just Genesis chapter 2, the reason is companionship. It's not good for man to be alone for this reason. But it was more than that because if you read the whole context, in Genesis chapter 1, you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. How is that possible? Oh, and he gives a wife, and then you're in a relationship. Oh, so marriage is for childbearing. Uh-huh. If you read some of the New Testament, you'll see it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're burning with sexual desire, you should marry. Why? Because marriage is your sexual outlet. Any sex outside of marriage, the Bible teaches, is out of the context, which makes it dangerous and sinful. Any of it, FYI. So let that apply as it does. But in the, so marriage is for fulfillment of sexual desire. Yep. So you could say it's for childbearing. You could say it's for companionship. You could say it's for uh, sexual desires. But what Paul gives us in this passage is beyond any of those things. It's beyond us. Look at what he says next. We've read verse 31 a few times, but it says in verse 31 and 32, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, or be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is intimate. But then he says this in verse 32, This mystery is profound. Okay, why? 
because we've been talking about the reason for a long time and we're getting complicated in the answers, but he's about to tell us the reason. But first he calls it a mystery. Some people have called the book of Ephesians the book of mystery because it mentions that word mystery multiple times. It talks about it in relation to Jew and Gentile relationships. We talked about that in uh, chapter 2 and 3. It talks about it. The angels long to look at your redemption and what's going on in the church. As, we, as you take like that guy, you picked that guy to be a Christian. You're using this person. You took her. And as the angels are watching, they're blown away at God's wisdom in these things. It's a mystery to us what's taking place in the church, in lives, in relationships with one another, and, and some of you might remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about mystery, and I confessed something to you. I told you I watched Dateline. Remember, some of y'all judged me, and now you're doing it again. That's between you and Jesus. Some of you came up to me and you whispered to me, I've seen every episode, like on the down low. Everybody who's talking about this that does it is on the down low. It's like, I've seen it, I've watched. And those who said you watched every episode, I judged you. I'm sorry, I get it. I was like, every episode, I'm not that bad. But at any rate, and if you haven't watched Dateline, Dateline, I, I just shared with everybody, is what happens at my house is my wife will fall asleep, I'll start watching. It's usually about a husband who kills his wife and then does something dumb, and then my wife wakes up, is like, why are you watching this? And we have a weird conversation. She falls back asleep, and it's over. But <clears throat> I had one member of our church reach out to me and say, you said you watched Dateline. Maybe you've seen the story about my sister. Her husband killed her and then fled to Argentina, where he's been living for the past 20 years. And so she had my attention. I watched the clip. It wasn't Dateline. It was actually on 48 Hours. She told me I could share this with you. Um, it's been, there's ripple effects of sin, by the way. There's been great pain. So I hope your heart goes out for this, the sister that we have in our church. And uh, she was telling me about this story, and I started to read the story, and I watched the video that she sent, and I started to read Google Doc, you know, all the different stuff that was out there, and Wiki, Wiki's got some stuff on this guy, and he's written a book, and people have written a book about him, and he went to Argentina, and then he claimed they're going to kill me if they send me back to America, and they're against the death penalty. And then Colorado said, no, we won't kill them. Please give them to us. And then he came up with a conspiracy theory about 9-11, and it's all this convoluted stuff. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, this is so personal for this family. And I just want the truth to come out for their sake. And now I know time and truth end in the same place. Sometimes that's not going to be until the last day of judgment. But it's been 20 years, Lord. How about now? And then I, I read this, and I think mystery. It's not just like a novel that we read. This is so personal to each one of us. Everybody who's married, this isn't a, a pretty personal statement that's about to be made. And you would never guess the conclusion of what he's about to say if he hadn't written it down in the Bible. Companionship, probably come up with that one. Childbearing, probably come up with that one. Sexual intimacy, probably come up with that one. You're never going to guess this one. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage is bigger than you. Your marriage is a picture not only of the restoration of what took place in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, but of what's coming in the book of Revelation. The Bible begins and ends with a picture of marriage. Your marriage points back to what should have been and points forward to what will be one day of communion and union of Christ and His church. It says it like this in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John writes these words. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. I imagine it sounding like water. Oh, and that's what he says, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. What is it saying? Hallelujah. Multiple voices. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice. Okay. 
and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. How? It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Have you been invited? Anybody who's thirsty, he says, come. Anybody who's longing, he says, come. And he said to me, these are the true, true words of God. Your marriage points to that. I mean, we could talk about that, how glorious that may be one day, but how in the world does your marriage do that? That's the reason. Reclaim the reason, this is the reason. But how? Go back to the beginning of the passage. We've got roles to play in this, and this is the strategy. We must reclaim God's role for wives. That's the first part, verses 22 through 24. And if you want the second point, that's the second point. We must reclaim God's role for wives. Verse 22 says this. We've already read it once. We, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. This is delicate material, so I'm going to slow down, which is normal speed for everybody else. <laughs> but important that the words are precise here. Let me tell you why this is delicate material. It is not because the passage is hard to explain. It isn't. It's actually pretty simple. It is because it's difficult to apply, and it's been misapplied a lot of times, which has led to even abuse within the church but certainly to domineering and bullying leaders in homes. So I say slowly, and this part, even though we're in the wife section, is for husbands, if that is you, I hope you recognize it today, you acknowledge it today, and you repent of it today. Because what's oftentimes happened is that men will take a biblical definition of submission, which it is putting yourself under the authority of another who has leadership, and then give an unbiblical definition of leadership. And when they give that unbiblical definition of leadership, they usually choose the world's definition of leadership. The leader has whoever's under them serves them. The biblical definition is whoever's under you, you serve. And so because of the misapplication of that, I think Jesus would say to you, you praise me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. Repent, you're a hypocrite. And so if that applies, let the Spirit do its work. But ladies, you've got to ask yourself the question, what does it mean to submit to my husband? And it does not mean that you're inferior to your husband. First of all, notice, it doesn't say submit to all men. It does not say obey your husband. You're not commanded. You're not a child to obey your parents. You're to submit. And submission means to defer to the best interest of the other, which is interesting. When we get to the next section, we talk about what it is to love your wives. The word that's used for love there, it's not the erotic love. It's not the family kind of love. It's the kind of love that sacrificially puts the other person first. So can you imagine what it would look like if you would actually see a, a marriage like this where two people are looking out for the best interests of the other person? I've been a pastor for a while now. Listen, I have never, ever, ever had anybody come to me and say that applying this passage is why they're getting a divorce. Think about reasons why people get divorced. It's like finances, in-laws, communication issues, sex issues. I have never had anybody come to me and say, you know what? My spouse just keeps putting my best interests ahead of theirs. I just can't outdo them in loving good deeds. I'm done. No. It's like over. I've never seen that. 
But what if one of the spouses doesn't? Notice neither one of these roles is contingent upon the other person. In fact, wives, just FYI, and you have to go to Peter, we don't have time for all that, but if you go to 1 Peter, it says, if you have an unbelieving husband, it's not wrong for you to try to change him, FYI, uh, but you do it with your submissive life that reveals Jesus. Because if you want to talk about whether submission is, is somehow an inferiority thing, it is not. In fact, it's a description of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus submitted to the Father. And remember our full context here. The context is actually, the immediate context is verse 22 is tied to verse 21, as they always are, and that's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what we're looking at is a spirit-filled marriage, and a spirit-filled wife is going to submit to her husband. Well, all spirit-filled Christians defer to the interests of the other people, because verse 21 says to all of us, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. But it looks different at every relationship. So if all Christians are supposed to submit to one another, parents, you're supposed to submit to your kids. That doesn't mean they get to decide everything. Now, some of your homes, that means some change needs to take place today. But it does mean that you're looking out for their best interests. What is their best interest? Wives, your husband's best interest is to fulfill the role that God has for him as a leader in your home. So your submission to him is to help him do that and empower him to do that very thing, to lead you. You might be a more gifted leader. Some of you husbands, when we get to leadership, you might be like, I don't want to be a leader. You don't get to pick. You're married. You got the role. I'm not gifted. Okay, you're going to need a lot of help, but it's your responsibility to take initiative. And so that's, that's what a leader does. Now, wives, your responsibility is to help him do that very thing. That's in your submission to him because we have different roles, not different value. Remember, Genesis chapter 1, in creation, he created them both in the image of God. So you're equal in value from creation perspective. From a salvation perspective, Galatians chapter 3 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And so this isn't about who's more important. And remember, the bigger context beyond verse 21 of chapter 5 is Ephesians 4, verse 1. That's the context for the whole second half of the book. Have a conducive life to the calling for the salvation which you've been given. Okay. And what have we seen so far? That everything that's come after that has pointed people back to Christ. And so, first you're told, be humble, be patient, be forbearing. Oh, those are all characteristics of Jesus. Okay. And then you see one spirit, one father, one Lord. And so, oh, as we live in community with one another, it reveals the Trinity. And then remember, we were given those commands. Stop lying. Tell the truth. That's how you heard the gospel. All these things point to Christ. Your submission to your husband is actually a picture of Christ who was one with the Father, so you can't get any more equal than that. They're one in essence, three in person. The Son chose to submit to the Father because of His role. And so what happens in a marriage is, while you're equal in value, you're not the same. And I'm not just talking about anatomy. You're not the same in role, in function. Husbands and wives have different functions in the marriage. It's kind of like, you know what a mess it would be in a symphony if everybody tried to play the same chair and the same instrument? That would not be beautiful music. Some of you watched football yesterday. And so we can just use this analogy and like everything that requires multiple people. Uh, in football, there's only one quarterback on the field at a time. You know what the quarterback's role is? He's responsible. That means he's a leader. He's responsible to make sure the play gets executed. The coach calls the play. The quarterback's responsible to communicate that play to everyone, either in the huddle. I'm not talking about different offenses, okay? At some point, signals, whatever. Omaha, whatever. He's got to communicate to everybody what they're supposed to be doing and where they're supposed to be at. But he can't throw the ball to himself. He can't hand the ball to himself. He has to have teammates for this to be executed. Now, if it goes poorly, I'm going to tell you who the coach is talking to, the one who's responsible. That's you, husbands. 
God's calling the plays. You're responsible to make sure everybody's in the right place. And the play, but everybody has to execute. And wives, part of your execution is in helping your husband be empowered to fulfill his role as a leader in the relationship. How does that look? We don't have time to do counseling as I preach, but that's going to be applicable in a lot of different scenarios. There's a book that Tim and Kathy Keller, Tim Keller is a pastor, and his wife Kathy have written called The Meaning of Marriage. At the end of that book, she gets so practical. I think it's worth buying the book just to read like the five pages at the end where she's got an appendix where she talks about how does this look in their relationship when they're making difficult decisions? Because if we're both equals and there's two of us and we disagree, how do we decide? And she ends up showing, I defer to him because he's going to be responsible before God for this decision. Does that mean that he gets what he wants? Well, if he selfishly leads that way, he's going to be held accountable before God for that, and that's not biblical leadership. He's supposed to be doing what's best for the family as a whole. And so he, she tells the story of when they were called to plant a church in New York City, and he wanted to go, and she didn't want to go. She said, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's going to be a mess. He's, he's feeling compelled to do it. And she, he says to her, okay, if you don't want to go, we won't go. And then she says, nope, you're not doing that to me. Why not? Why not, ladies? Because Genesis 3, he's abdicating. It looks like he's serving. He's abdicating his responsibility. He's putting the decision on her. She's going, no, 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 no. That's not your role. Your role is to decide. And if you decide different than what I want, now my job is then to decide whether or not you're following the Lord. And if you are, then I've got to come under that. Because ladies, here's the reality. Some of you have husbands that are going to lead you down paths away from Jesus. You don't follow that path. Hey, you hear that? I don't believe her or not believe her. You don't, you don't obey your husband. You submit to him as you're submitting to the Lord. He's not the Lord, by the way. You're submitting it, but he starts leading you away. If you've got a husband that says, hey, we don't, need, we don't need to be hanging out with these Christians. You stop reading your Bible. Like whatever the things are that you're commanded to do in Scripture, you go, I can't follow you down that path. You're lovingly rebuking him, but helping him. See, and if you want, well, where's that in the Bible? Uh, what about like if our government? If the government tells you they're going, they're going to tax you more, and you're like, I don't want to pay that. Well, you have to. You don't get to decide. Well, I'm a Christian. I don't want what well, you have to. You pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You don't get to decide that. But if they tell you to stop talking about Jesus, you go, I'm going to keep doing that. There's consequences. Okay. You're going to lose your job. Okay. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. And where do we get that? Acts 5. Peter stands before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and says, you decide whether it's okay to obey God or man. Uh, I'm going to keep doing what God says, and I'm telling people about Jesus. They get beaten after that, by the way. So there are consequences. She don't follow when they're telling… And that's it's a lovingly… It's a rebuke to the government. It's a rebuke to your husband. But you submit. And there's decisions that get made. What house to buy? What city to live in? He's going to be responsible for those decisions. And that doesn't have anything to do with you following the Lord or not following the Lord. And so he's got to make the final call. Because what does his leadership look like? So husbands, you've got to assume your role of leadership too. You want to reclaim marriage? Then it needs to look the way that it was supposed to look prior to sin reclaim God's role for the husband. It says this in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. You would think that since she's told to submit, it would say, husbands, rule your wives. But it does not. It says, husbands, love your wives. But it's not just love that you get to define and pack into all the, our culture into. It says, just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And so, remember our reason. We're restoring what took place in Genesis. Remember what Adam failed to do, failed to take responsibility. He was passive. There's a second Adam in the Bible. His name is Jesus. Romans 5 talks about him. We'll talk about that in just a second. But what he does is the exact opposite. He takes the initiative. He leaves heaven. He comes to earth. 
He takes responsibility for a mess he did not create, sin, when he died on the cross for our sins. And so he's reversing the curse. So he, Adam, passive, blame, shame, Jesus, freedom, takes initiative, responsibility. Romans chapter 5 says it like this, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through, but Eve sinned first, but the Bible says one man, because he's responsible, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then you jump down a few more verses, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Go back up to verses 6 through 10. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Oh, we weren't deserving? No, it's not contingent on her respect and submission. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Remember, we're supposed to love like this, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love. This is godly love. This is supernatural love. Not somebody who deserves it. Not somebody you like. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still his enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? That's the love that you've experienced. If you haven't experienced that love, men, it's really hard to give it because it's supernatural. And so before we even get into loving your wife like this, you've got to ask yourself the question, not do I believe facts about God, not am I a churchgoer, not have I always gone to church, but if I received the love of Christ? Because in verse 5 of this passage, we don't have time to read all of Romans chapter 5, but in Romans 5, 5 it says he's poured it out through his spirit. And if that's been poured into you, then that's what you pour out into your wife, and that's how you love. And that's why the definition of biblical leadership is the exact opposite of the world's definition. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples and they're arguing about who's the greatest and he says, whoever's the greatest, go ahead, you should try to be the greatest, but the greatest is the least. So don't be like the unsaved people in the world. Then when they have leadership, they, they lord it over the people that are under them. Use those people for their own benefit. Instead, when you're a leader, you're supposed to be serving those people. So the world's definition of leadership is whoever I'm over, they serve me. Biblical definition is whoever I'm over, I serve them. And so that's what Christ did for us. You look at, I was talking to a young lady after the first service and she was talking about church and pastors and elders. And, and I said, yeah, so the pastors and elders are leaders of the church. Their job is to be the chief servants in the church to try and get the family to where they believe that the head, Christ, is leading them to be. Husbands, that's your role in the home. Whether you want it or not, you're married and you're the husband, you got it. And that's what you're gonna be held accountable for one day to love this way. Now here's the reality, when you're serving, and you're doing it biblically in biblical context, it doesn't change anything about you being the leader. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, nobody was thinking that Jesus wasn't the leader anymore. In fact, you know what Jesus said at the end of that? In, in John chapter 13, uh, he says this, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, don't miss this, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So in other words, you love like Jesus. What does that look like? Ephesians 5 tells us. First thing is, it's a sacrificial love. And that's what we saw in verse 25, that he gave himself up for her. And husbands, I bet many of you here think that in, in this situation, given the opportunity, you take a bullet or she takes a bullet, you're not grabbing her and putting her in front of you. Like you think you're going to take the bullet. You think you're the hero. In fact, I, this week as I was reflecting on this, I remembered a story from a shooting in Colorado at a movie theater, some of you might remember this, in Aurora, uh, where there was a guy, he was his, there with his girlfriend and their kids at this movie, 
The shooter came in, he jumped over the rail from the balcony, ran out of the theater, into the lobby, out of the lobby, to his truck, got in his truck, drove across the street to the movie theater, and then called his girlfriend and his kids who were still back in the movie theater. Afterwards, social media started to blast him as a coward, except because of the arguments we have in our culture, some people are going, she can take care of herself. She's a strong woman. She's a but rightly so, he was being condemned as a coward because he was a coward. I bet most of you, when you hear that story, think, I would never do that. I can tell you how to know. You want to know whether or not you would die for your wife if somebody pulled a gun out? Will you die for her daily? Say, so how do you know that? Well, the Bible says if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. So why do you think in some grandiose heroic event you're going to rise up if today you won't die to yourself? So will you sacrificially love your wife and dying to your interest sometimes because of your interest in her? Because maybe that means putting down your phone. Maybe that means pausing the game. But you're hearing her heart. You want to know what she thinks. You want to know what she feels. If you won't do that, you're not going to take a bullet, just so you know. It means dying to your pride and thinking, well, I'm the leader. I'm going to figure this out. Being the leader does not mean you have all the answer. It doesn't even mean you're the smartest person in the room. In fact, did you see the ladder picture? All right. So humble yourself and listen. You're going to be held accountable for whatever decision gets made, but gather some information. Listen to her heart. See, if you're supposed to be serving her desires, you need to know those desires. You need to die to yourself, to your time, to your pride. Will you do that? That's sacrificial love. And then maybe one day you'll get the opportunity to take a bullet, and you'll know what you'll do because you've fostered it for years. It's not just sacrificial love, though. It's also sanctifying love. Look at this. This is what Jesus does for the church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, talking about the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so it's the word that makes us more and more like Christ. The sanctification means to be set apart. It's the very thing you do with your wife when you marry her. You're setting her apart. It's different than every other woman in the world in your life. But you want her to be more like Jesus so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, and so you're supposed, at the beginning it said as Christ, and then it gives what he does, and now it says, husbands, you should love your wives. You love yourself. You love your own body. This is the same as the idea of love your neighbor as yourself. No closer neighbor than your wife. You love your body, and if you guys are going, ah, I don't really care about my body, that whole image thing. You ever had a man cold? Okay, there we go. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's gentle language, just as Christ does the church. Listen, guys, um, I'm sure everybody's wife is naturally beautiful, but on their wedding day, most, I mean, you might be super granola. That's awesome. Glad you're here. Um, we got, used to have coffee. We don't have coffee. At any rate, um, most wives got ready that day, whether that was a custom dress or somebody else did their makeup or somebody did their hair. They got prepared for their wedding day. The picture that's being given here is that Jesus prepares the church for himself to be holy and blameless one day. And husbands, you're supposed to love as Christ loved the church. And you take care of yourself. The idea is you're getting her ready for that wedding day in Revelation chapter 19. And you are going to be held accountable for her spiritual flourishing. Are you helping her flourish spiritually with the way you're leading in the home, with the way you're interacting with her? Does that mean that you're, you're you know, throwing the Bible down her throat all the time, but are you providing, are you fostering an environment where spiritual growth can take place? And so here's the application question. Does your wife love Jesus more because of or in spite of 
you being her husband. And you guys can talk about that on your own later. Yes, you're, um, you're welcome for that uh, homework assignment. You can email me with thank you notes later. Um, but it's not just sanctifying love, and it's not just sacrificial, it's also unstoppable love. Verse 31, we've read so many times, but it says this as we conclude, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, be united, be joined, it all means the same thing, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is why Jesus says uh, later, what God has brought together, let no man separate. When it comes together, it's meant to be permanent in this life. And when it's taken apart, and I know some of you have been through divorces, it's painful and it's difficult. Uh, God can restore, and if you're in a second marriage or third marriage, start doing this stuff now. But the point, husbands, for you, as we're looking at this, is you keep fighting for the marriage. You always keep fighting for the marriage. It's unstoppable love because it's meant to last throughout this lifetime. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who I first heard say, uh, it's not a coincidence that Ephesians 5 comes before Ephesians 6. Those of you who know Ephesians 6, and we'll talk about it next week, it's all about spiritual battle. Ephesians 5, for you to have this kind of marriage is going to require a battle. You've got enemies, foreign and domestic, seen and unseen. And so I want to ask you husbands, try and imagine this scenario with me. Imagine you're on a plane, it gets hijacked, it's just you and your family as passengers. Would you, would you try to reclaim the plane if the only way you could do it was taking the initiative, being responsible, dying to yourself, and doing what's in the best interest of your wife and kids? That's how you know. That's how you know if you'd fight. And don't give up. And wives, if the only thing you could do was help your husband fulfill that role, would you do everything in your power and with all of your energy to make that happen? That's how you know if you want to reclaim marriage. And you vote to decide whether we take it back by what you do when we leave here today. Father, I come before you today. I am thankful for your word. There's so much more we could say in application. I pray for our small groups to have productive biblical conversations led by your Holy Spirit. There's so much unbiblical wisdom that's out there that's actually foolishness that's out there. God, I pray you'd protect them from that and give wisdom from your word and that people would just keep going back to your, what do you say? How do you say it? How do you want it? And we'd submit to you. And then we'd submit to one another. And then we'd put the glory of your son on display. And I pray that people would come to Christ as a result of marriages in our church. I pray for somebody who came to church today that was planning on getting a divorce, that you would have them change their mind. Father, I pray for somebody here today who doesn't know your son Jesus, and they've heard about marriage the whole time, but they've seen a picture of your son Jesus' love for them, and they would want that relationship. God, I pray you'd save somebody today. Father, will you, will you have them place their faith in you right now, confessing their sins and asking your son Jesus to be their Savior? I pray for marriages, God. I pray that people would recommit to their vows. I pray they would recommit maybe to a new vision of marriage as a result of the things they see of your reason for it, that it goes beyond what most… It's beyond get along and be nice. It's beyond just stay together. It's beyond being roommates that don't divorce. Father, would you just pour that vision into our hearts and then our church would be a church that puts that on display. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.